0: Hey, good morning, good morning. again. Good morning. Um, before we get started, one one thing also, we'll have prayer tonight um, here at 6.30. So please come back to church, even though you've already been once today, uh, to come pray with us uh, tonight. Um, let's pray. Let's start with prayer. Jesus, we worship you. You are a good and glorious king of and you rule the entire universe. And you've invited us to have fellowship with you. You have made a way for us to, to be with you. You have indeed uh, come to dwell with your people. You have tabernacled among us. And we want to be aware of that. And we give you all the praise and all the glory for how you rule your church and how you rule the world. We ask that we would be mindful of that, mindful of who's in control here, um, and that that as you are here with us, Lord, we pray that your spirit would open up our eyes to see wonderful things from your law that we didn't know before. We ask for a spiritual anointing on our ears, uh, on our eyes, on our hearts, on my mouth, that we would speak and hear and love the deep things of God. Be with us, meet with your church today, and shape us more and more into the image of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, So, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, You can turn to 1 Corinthians 9 if you just want to, like, check in and see if it's still there, but we're not going to be studying that this morning. It is, uh, (laughs) it's just, it's just too good that we came to Psalm 139 this week. It's just too good. uh, So we've got to take a break from 1 Corinthians today. We've got to live in Psalm 139. I absolutely love the fact that 139 weeks ago, give or take, but we're pretty sure it's about 139 weeks ago, we started reading through the Psalms one at a time, beginning at Psalm 1. And when we started at Psalm 1, we couldn't have guessed we couldn't have asked, thought, or imagined that we would arrive on Psalm 139, the passage beautifully describing God's loving care for the unborn And yes. The Sunday after our country would reverse the federal law protect, protecting abortion. We couldn't have guessed it. We wouldn't have asked for it because God is always intending to bless beyond what we could guess or ask or think or imagine. We read Psalm 139 already. Thank you, Laura. I'm going to read it again, and I'd like you to follow along in your own Bibles, if you would, starting in verse 1, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell... Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, we rejoice in these things. Um, this chapter of Scripture, I have taught more than any other chapter of Scripture. Um, this uh, is is what I call my back pocket sermon, or at least I have a sermon on this that's my back pocket sermon for when you're like... Uh, out of church somewhere on the mission field and you're like happy to be at church and suddenly they say, oh, guess who's preaching? It's you. So that's, that's what like, I can pull out Psalm 139. I know it's there. It's always there for me. And you can walk through because it it just, it preaches itself. These are beautiful truths. You just get to rejoice them and you can walk through. I think I've, I think I've taught this passage in four different continents uh, now, but today's going to be my favorite. (laughs) This is the best time I've ever taught this passage. Um, and, and walking through this chapter uh, with you today is, is uh, it's a privilege and it's a joy. And in Psalm 139, as we just saw, as you just read, we see a God who knows his people, who knows each one of his people, at the most intimate, intimate level imaginable. And a God who is present in every circumstance, in every situation, in an intense way. We see a God in Psalm 139 who moves beyond what we can imagine, who is surprising, in fact, in how far he reaches in what he involves himself in. He uh, moves and lives beyond the structures that we put in place. He moves outside of boundaries that we in our limited weak imaginations think could limit him. Even in hell you are there, really? It says that? Yes, it does. Getting ahead of ourselves a bit. But I'm sure you noticed in this psalm as we read it, uh, and I'm sure that if you consider your own life and how you have seen God move, you've noticed it there as well. God is effective at getting to us. He's very good at reaching the thing that he wants to hold. God is very good at accomplishing his will. God works and blesses beyond all that we could ask think or imagine. This is a Psalm of David and it is uh, a dream sequence. (laughs) You see uh, uh, more than halfway there in uh, verse 18, almost to the end, he says, when I awake, I am still with you. And you have this idea of David thinking about God in the evening and then thinking about him as he goes to sleep. And then he's thinking about him through his sleep. And then he wakes up and he's still thinking about God because while you're sleeping, God is still working. And it begins with his, his meditations on God. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me. Um, when you go to an airport or try to board a plane, you know, there's people there that are pretty good at searching you uh, and, and your luggage. Uh, uh, I've smuggled plenty of things past them, but that's neither here nor there. But if you're, if you're one of the unlucky ones that you, uh, that you get singled out because you look so very suspicious uh, then the kind ladies and gentlemen in the TSA will go through all your pockets and all your bags and, and they'll make sure you're not hiding anything in any of your clothes and they'll confiscate your fingernail clippers, you know, because those things are dangerous and everything. And the idea being, the idea is, you know, you go through that process and, and when you're done, they know where everything is. You have been searched. Hidden or not, uh, the people that work there that have the x-ray machines, they see that, you have this, this, and this, and they see that you don't have that, this, or the other thing. They run your stuff through an x-ray machine so they can see everything that you are bringing. Verse 1 says, the Lord has searched you. He's much more effective at it than anyone air, at an airport. And if you can think of your life as a backpack or a piece of luggage that you're bringing on a plane, we categorize our lives, a- and sometimes into different pockets. Uh, we divide ourselves. We think we are divided. So we, we end up keeping this part of our life in one place and another part of our life in the next place. Uh, an example may be, you know, you might compare the way you behave at work and the way you behave at home or with your family or on a nice Sunday morning with all your Christian friends. And, and you've got different pockets. And the Lord shows up and has searched you. And he knows every pocket equally. There's nothing hidden from his sight. This can be beautifully comforting or horribly terrifying. We don't behave like the rest of the world sometimes because we're a church, but we become a different person when we're in certain environments. God has searched all your pockets. I want you to know as you look at this psalm that God knows everything there is to know about you. You're not a different person here and there. You're not. When you come before God, it's just you. When you're not before God, he still sees you. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, you know the passage, a famous verse, the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, you can't show God one part of your life and think he doesn't know all the other parts. He has searched you, and he has known you. He knows you better than you know you. And as you come into God's presence, remember that you've already gone through the metal detector. Security's done. That's already happened. You're cleared. And he's still going to talk to you. <laughs> And he's still going to be with you. And he's still going to know you in this intimate way. As you come into God's presence, you have cleared the metal detectors. He has searched you. And he has decided you're worth knowing. What is the extent of his knowledge? Verse 2 says, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God is aware of all the things you do. This is a way of saying this, that, the other thing. He knows you when you stand up and when you sit down and when you lay down and when you talk and when you're silent and when you think and when you don't think. But more than just that, he knows, he knows your thoughts before you think them. <laughs> he knows your words before you say them or before you even thought that they needed to be said. Uh, in the Hebrew, which this was originally written in, it says, you know my thoughts in their origins before you form the thoughts in your brain, you know that feeling? You're like, okay, I think I have a good idea and it's coming and it's coming and I'm thinking of it. Like he already knows it. He already knows it before that. In its origins, it's still being brewed. He knows your thoughts. God knew your thoughts before you were trying to think them. And yes, God knows the future, but more than that, he knows your future. He knows that what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow and where you're going to live 30 years from now. He knows everything. And when we say God knows everything, we're talking about something called God's omniscience, right? You know that word, it's all-knowing. And that's a really cool thing to think about. Because God knows everything, because he created everything that we see and feel and taste, God knows everything that you know and have ever experienced. Hopefully that's obvious, but hopefully we don't take it for granted like we do other obvious things. Um, Now, of course, we're not talking about the knowledge of, you know, book learning. We're not saying God knows all the math problems. God knows two plus two equals four. Well, of course, he knows what that is, but he he knows what things feel like, too, which is the only way we can believe in a God who mourns with those who mourn. It's the only way we can believe in a God who knows what it's like to suffer for joy set before him, because he knows what things feel like. Um, I don't know if I'm being overly spiritual about this or not, but God knows what ice cream tastes like. Okay, and He says it was good, and He knows He knows what it, it feels like to play in the snow. Uh, he 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 designed the sensation of an ice cold drink. He He knows what it feels like to read a book, go swimming, play volleyball. He knows all those things because He designed those sensations, and and He knows. The feeling of loss and the feeling of pain and the feeling of fear. He knows all those things because he is, as God, all-knowing. You know, every time you meet someone, you meet someone, there's things about that person you don't know. Whenever you meet someone, you know something that they don't know. (laughs) But when you encounter God, all the curtains are down. Uh, He knows all the things that you don't know. And he knows everything about you that you haven't even thought of yet. And this is true in such a deep way because of the incarnation, because God became man 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ is a man who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be fully human with all of humanity's joys and sorrows. Isn't it great? Isn't it good? Knowing that we have a God who we have something in common with because of the incarnation. I don't know if you've thought about that, but it's really hard to start a relationship with someone that you, don't, you just have nothing in common with, right? It's like we don't see eye to eye on anything. We don't enjoy any of the same things. We have none of the same experiences. And a lot of people would think that they have nothing in common with God because, let's face it, he's great and awesome and holy and, and we're dust. What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8, right? But because Jesus lived as a man, on this earth, and because he ascended as a man into heaven, we can pray to a God who has something in common with us. He knows what you know fully and completely. He has entered into your experience so that when you bring any trouble, doubt, question, temptation before him, he can say, I know. And sometimes that's all we want to hear, isn't it? In verse 5, we see that God goes beyond just knowing you inside and out, as if that uh, was, wasn't enough. It says, you have hedged me behind him before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's just too much. He goes beyond just knowing you inside and out. He actually does something about it. God is very involved in his creation. A hedge in a yard. It's a living fence, right? It's a plant that you can't walk around through or over. God has hedged you. He has put himself as a fence around you. I know that God has kept me from danger, both physical and spiritual, right? I've had plenty of close calls. You have too, I'm sure. You you drive or your, your work or whatever, and you're like, that could have gone differently. That could be, that could have gone real different, but well, okay, God had a plan, still here. And, and sometimes I, I think for some reason what I would be like if I wasn't if you hadn't saved me, you know, because you know the depths of your heart, you know, you know the things you're tempted to. I'm positive that if God had not saved me, I'd be very good at many crimes. Uh, I think I'd be good at it, actually. Um, but God has, he has hedged me in, right? And he's done the same thing for you. He has kept you from the wor- becoming the worst version of yourself. Yes. And as, as you go throughout life, opportunities will arise. And you have people who speak Christianese to you, right? And they said, there's open doors. You, you've got an open door. You, you got accepted for this job or you're going to move at this stage in your life or whatever. And, and those can be evidences of God's providence providing for you. Uh, sometimes you'll go after an opportunity, maybe a relationship or a, a job opportunity, and then the door will be shut in your face. And that is evidence of God providing for you just the same as if it were open. It's, it's evidence of God protecting you from something you don't know. I mean, you've probably heard this before. I've, you know, I've heard it said that there's no open doors. You just praise God in the hallway, right? You just like praise Him in the hallway. That's fine. If God shuts a door, believe me, you don't want what's, you don't want. What's on the other side of it? Just stay put. Um, another version of the Bible, instead of hedge, it says you have squeezed me on all sides. <laughs> uh, he is keeping you exactly where he wants you. He is guiding your life individually. You in particular are under the hand of God. In verse 6, and I've read it before, I'm going to read it again, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I, I cannot attain it. No kidding, Right? No kidding. Reading and thinking about verse 1 through verse 5, it's like thinking of the vastness of the universe, right? You look up at the stars until your brain hurts. Trying to comprehend this kind of mystery of God being intentionally involved in the day-to-day of your life. It's like pouring an ocean into a teacup, okay? It's just too much. He's more than you can handle. And when you start thinking about him, don't don't think you'll have it all figured out real soon. To consider this almost invasive knowledge that he has about your life is a thought that, well, one sermon certainly can't expound. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is too high. This is, I, I cannot attain it. Not only can I not explain it, I don't have it So to explain. I cannot reach it. It's beyond me to see the hand of God in the lives of his people. Verse 7 through 10 Is all about God's omnipresence, right? So 1 through 5 is omniscience, is all knowing. And then 7 through 10 is He's everywhere, He's omnipresent. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. It's amazing that even though we know that God is way above anything we can think or imagine, he's, he is beyond in the most true sense of that word, even though that is the case, he is at this moment very close. He is near to each one of us. God is separate from this world, as a painter is separate from a painting, but he is also in our lives. The Spirit of God is in you, and the Son of God is a man like you, and he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even though we pray to our Father who art in heaven, we are not praying to a God who is limited to a space called heaven. Verse 8 uses heaven and hell as extremes. This idea is more like God, it's more than God is everywhere. Now, know, this might sound stupid, but the real statement here is not God is everywhere. He's saying, there's nowhere God isn't. I can't find anywhere that he's not. Yeah, yeah, it means the same thing, basically, but I think this is important. If there was somewhere in all of creation where God wasn't, then that would mean God was limited by that thing or space. If there was a space in the universe that God wasn't, it would mean the universe was bigger than God, which, of course, is not true. And this matters. This matters because if you ever decide to run from God, you're going to be bad at it. <laughs> Um, do not plan on being successful. Uh, or maybe you realize this is, this is what you're doing now. Uh, I want to tell you that you, you haven't done a very good job of it. You are no further from him than when you started. No matter how far, you from, far from God you feel, whether it's because of your own running or external circumstances, he's not any further away from you than the moment you felt his closeness. He's still Present. No matter how far away from him you might try to go, he's not actually getting any further away. Where could you go to get away from a God like ours? He is present. And here's the cool part. Because you can know that if God is everywhere and there's nowhere that he isn't, then verse ten can be true for you as well. Verse ten and eleven and and twelve. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. That's yours. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. For the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now, verse 10 is, it's kind of like verse 5. Okay, verse 5 showed us that just because God knows everything. He's not done yet. It's more than omniscience. He knows all there is about you, and he hedges. He he hedges you because of what he knows. He knows everything, and he does something about it. God is involved in your life. His hand will lead you, and his right hand shall hold you. Now, in verse 10, we see he's everywhere, but it's not just that he's everywhere passively. It's not that he's everywhere because we're pantheists, and everything is God, and God is everything, and blah, 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 blah. He's everywhere and does something about it. His hand is on you. His hand of blessing is on you. If you desire to be led by God, by the hand, you can be. Most of us, at least sometimes, if not all the time, want to make our own decisions instead and stand up on our own two feet. And we want independence, and we don't want to be led. If you live like that for very long, you'll realize that it's just no way to live. It's way better to be led by the hand of God and to be held by the hand of God. Um, this, this is a verse to return to frequently in your life. Um, in every season, just as in every place, God is near. And we see how David prays in verse 11 and 12. We see that when he, when he is hurting, down, depressed, weak, he can go back to this truth of God's presence and recognize and confess God's ability to lead and to hold in that moment. We read verses 11 and 12. We see uh, the language about darkness and night. And um, essentially this says, you know, God can say, even though you can't see in the dark, I still can. This goes back to the limitless God. There is nothing that can make God less than he is. Even the darkness is as light to him. In 1 Timothy, it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. That's cool. James says that he is the father of lights, and in him there is no shadow of turning. He is consistent throughout all the inconsistencies of our lives. In verse 11, the poet says that darkness will fall on him. Darkness is imagery for depression and fear, usually. And you can say, oh no, life stinks, I'm grouchy, I hate all this, but that doesn't really separate you from God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? We confess that, we believe that. You can't you, you can let it make you be less aware of him, but God sees right through all that darkness, and you can be close. To, he can be close to you in that time. Now, back in the first part of the psalm, we saw that God knows your thoughts and your words before you think or speak them. He knows you as you are tomorrow. He also knew you before you were born or even created. And here's where we get to the good stuff. In verses 13 through 16, King David describes the love of God towards him that he experienced unwittingly while he was still in his mother's womb. Verse 13, David says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God made you, and he enjoyed doing it. Every person who has ever lived was created... By God, Again, not passively, but actively and intentionally with more than just skill, more than just a level of expertise, more than an intelligent design, but with the love and care of a father. You were at one time fashioned, crafted, assembled. <laughs> uh, no bigger than a poppy seed. That's how big you were at four weeks. At eight weeks, you were the size of a raspberry. Every single one of you. At 15 weeks, you're the size of an apple, and I have no idea why they always do it to fruit. Why do they always compare babies to fruit? I don't get it. At 14 weeks, you're the size of a Rubik's Cube, but not the same shape. Um, okay, you, you used to be that size, every one of you, and God is interested in people who are that size. He was interested in you when you were being made because he was the one that was making you. As Christians, we believe that when Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, he would extend that to all children of every size, in every place, and in every time. We also believe, as Christians, that all life is a gift from God. He is the giver of life. Life is one of those gifts that comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We believe that following Christ, loving one another, doing good to the least of these, means defending life at all stages, and more than that, celebrating life at all stages. Why? Because we believe we're celebrating with God. We're just trying to enjoy the things that he enjoys. We're celebrating with God. Look how much God loves children. Verse 16, it's crazy. It's it's crazy. It's God, because he knows everything, already wrote down what happens every day in your life. He's like, size of Raspberry, you know, and like he he's he's taking notes. He's crazy about you. He is crazy about you, he's thinking about you all the time. When you really think about it, you may just think that God is is tolerating you, you know, sometimes. Um it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. What he says to Israel, who he calls his son, he says, My thoughts towards you are for peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. If he really knows everything about me, then what does he actually think about me? And well, as the song goes, you know the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. Not because of those things, in spite of those things, but you love me the same, knowing what's in every pocket of this backpack. Now in the next set of verses, we're going to see a bit of those deep places in David's heart, and it might catch you by surprise, because it's not the kind of church talk that we, we might be used to, right? Um... But in this, this celebration of verse 13 through 16, when David is like, wow, you loved me, and you formed me, and you crafted me, this is amazing, this is beautiful, he's in touch with this, um, an awe, an awe of God and his handiwork that is surprisingly optimistic, okay, because if we, we could easily take the theology here and say, God knows everything about me, and we could go straight to a kind of judgmental thing, it's like, and a lot of it, I don't think he really likes. You know, if we wrote this psalm, it would not be the bestseller that it is today. You know, we, we could easily uh, study all of these things and think like, well, yeah, like he knows, but it's more of like a hands-off kind of knowing. You know, he just kind of lets things unfold. It's like, no, we're not deists. That's not what we believe at all. It's like, yeah, the world is dark, but like God has a plan. It's like, yeah, his plan is to defeat darkness. That is the plan. That is actually the plan. But just as we can, we, us, us Christian church people, we can kind of fail in this area of optimism. Okay, all the doomsday prophets are Christians. That's a problem. Okay, um, that is, that, that's, that's an issue we need to address. Okay, we, we can have this idea. It's like everything's bad and it's going to get worse. And that's kind of like our, you don't want to be known for that. Like, obviously, God is working even when you're sleeping. And he has been at work since before you showed up. And his works are good, and he's going to win. And he is actively winning. So we're not so good at that area, the optimism part. We need to get better at that. But the other area we're not so good at, and I don't know if we should try to get better at it actively, is this hating the enemies thing. Um, we got to be really careful in these next verses. You're, this is going to say, like, this doesn't feel like... Worship songs. This doesn't feel like church so much, but but we're going to read them because this is important. Um, verse nineteen. We didn't read verse seventeen again, did we? It's so good. Let's read seventeen again. I really like it. Um, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God? How great is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's God's presence through the night into the morning, and David is rejoicing in the presence of God. And then when he gets up that morning, okay, you do your quiet time first thing in the morning, you know, you're getting out of bed, you're happy that you have another day of life, and you're going to open your Bible and your prayer journal, and this is what you write. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. What just happened? Like, (laughs) It is so easy to read these verses. I'm going to tell you what happened. They do belong here, obviously. But it is easy for us, with our Western churchy sensibilities, to think, they put this in the wrong psalm. Like, wasn't the grumpy psalm the one we had Matt read a few weeks ago? Like, put all the stuff in 137. That's the one with all the hard stuff. Um, I think you know what happened. I think if you've been tracking with David through this worship service that is Psalm 139, you know exactly what happened. Because I think most of you, when faced with the atrocities of this world, have a spiritual reaction that produces a righteous indignation. That happens in your heart. Now, if this is still confusing to you, let me tell you what happened with David. David loves God. He loves him so much. He likes to spend his time just thinking about God. That's what this psalm has been. He is struck to his core with this little bit of knowledge about a knowledge surpassing God. He's like, I know this much and it's so much. He considers the love of God towards him and he's overwhelmed. He considers the thoughts of God towards him. And he says, that's too much. It's too much. He considers the intelligence and the, the tenderness and the closeness of God and all that went into forming his own body, even from conception. And he says, I will praise you. That's the only thing I can possibly do when I consider the good things you've done. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is deeply in love with a God who not only knows everything about him, but actually thinks well of him. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. Man's thoughts towards God are great for us to read, but God's thoughts about man overwhelm us. I love it in Galatians where Paul says, now you have known God, or rather are known by God. He corrects himself. We saw this in Corinthians 2 a few weeks back. This is how Paul talks. He says, you know, being known by God is, is far greater than any thought you could come up about, you know, about the divine. Do we know all there is to know about God? No, but he knows all there is about us, and he loves us. David is struck with these truths, and while he is reveling in the greatness of his God who loves him, he needs only to look over his shoulder and see that there are those who would shake their fist at this great and tender God. And here's something I really like about the Psalms. They are very honest. David is honest. He says, after I spend hours, overnight even, it seems, just thinking about the greatness and the goodness of God. I went to sleep thinking about Jesus. I dreamed about Jesus. I woke up thinking about Jesus. And then I look at this world around me, and there's a reaction that happens. And you see how God is treated, and how his name is dragged through the dirt, and you hate it. He's still praying to God. David is still praying to his God, and he says, "They speak against you wickedly." He says, "I'll I'll count them my enemies." It doesn't say they spoke against David, you know, wickedly. That's not even on his mind. Now, there's a lot we could say to soften this kind of passage and say, if David was really the good guy, he would love his enemies, because I read the New Testament, and (laughs) Jesus does tell us to love our enemies, right? And and Good question. When's the last time you had a prayer meeting where you asked God to slay the wicked? Don't do that tonight, please. However Okay, so we, we see we see that this is like okay, this is a little different. This doesn't quite fit in the New Testament Christianity. But instead of taking that angle and just neutralizing the Word of God, let's take it for what it is. James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Proverbs eight verse thirteen says that to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Psalm 97 verse 10, it says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Live and let live is not a Christian doctrine. Universal tolerance is not a Christian doctrine. Do you know what is Christian? Hating the slaughter of the innocents. We do have some insight from the New Testament when Paul says that our enemies are spiritual. They are not physical. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. But we do wrestle. With that being true, apply those verses for all their worth. There is a spiritual force that is driving the progress of sin in our world. When you think of a personal named spirit being behind, oh, just for example, abortion, how can you not pray? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you, oh God? I hate them with perfect hatred. Not people, of course not. Not people for whom Christ died, but the sins themselves and the spiritual beings behind them. David directed his disgust towards enemies that he could see. We can go deeper, but we can still share the same disgust. Here's something we can learn from 19 through 22, that whole section there. When you encounter God and attempt to look him in the eye and consider his eye on you, not only will you feel the most profound affection for him, And his righteousness, and this awe of his closeness and love for you. But you will also feel the utmost contempt for sin and anything that would mock his love and righteousness. This is not hypocritical in any way. This is not judgmental in the sense that you usually hear. This contempt is turned inward just as much as outward. Read the last uh, verses here. Verse 23 says, Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David knows he's not the righteous one here. This isn't a story about good old David. He knows that the searching eye of God, who knows his thoughts before he thinks them, and his words before he speaks them, also sees the dark places of his mind. Even as you know and celebrate in the knowledge that God knows everything, it can still be a scary thing to invite him into your darkest corners, but David does. And after this examination of the greatness and goodness of God, and then glancing over at the sinfulness and perversion of man, the psalmist knows that he is in need of inspection as well. Remember, God's thoughts towards you are much more valuable than your thoughts towards him. So David invites God to search him he invites him to try him he invites him to test him and I think if we were to honestly look at the kind of God we serve we would serve him much more willingly because we'd say he's worth it that's what we're saying when he is worthy of it all he's worth it if we really took time to consider how well he already knows us we would be more willing to live our lives as an offering to him in living in the light in his presence there's nothing about you that's hidden from him You don't need to pretend that there is. See, this is where this whole thing gets really applicable. (laughs) You can know in your head that God knows all about you. You can even acknowledge intellectually that God has formed you intentionally and has hedged you behind him before, but it's a completely different thing to encounter God and submit to this reality. This is the path that David just took. He began in saying, you know everything, God, but he doesn't end there. He doesn't end with a theological confession, saying, God knows everything, move along, move along, nothing to see here. He says, God, you know everything, and then he walks through that, and at the end, the result is, then know me. You see everything, well then look at me. Your hand is over everything, well then put your hand on me. You can walk away and say, I guess God knows everything, and not let that change anything, but you can also come to God, as David does, and say in verse one, you have searched me, and then let that truth drive you to the prayer in verse 23, search me. Don't stop now. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. This is a prayer that you can pray with confident faith because it is based on the truth of verse one. You have searched me. Let me advise you a little bit. Start making your prayers like this. Base your requests on what you already know to be true. Paul said, praise for grace and peace to be on the churches." Paul already knows that God is a God who gives grace and peace. Ephesians 1, you have Paul start listing all the spiritual truths that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that we have redemption through his blood, that in him we have obtained an inheritance. And he just goes on and lists all these facts, all these true things about God, all these blessings that God has given us. And then 15 verses into this list of blessings, which for Paul is probably one sentence, of course. Paul says, therefore, or because these things are true, I've prayed for you. That God would be able, uh, that you would be able to understand all these things. That you'd be able to know the hope of your calling. That you'd be able to really understand all the things that are true. He asks for blessings because he knows God is a blesser. David prays for searching because he knows God is a searcher. Um, This is something you can learn from, of course. This is something you can do. Go ahead and ask him, the one who already knows you better than you do, to point out the things about you that he doesn't like and ask him, the one who already knows you better than you do, the one who already wrote your story, ask him to lead you to eternity where he is. This may be a hard thing to pray, the first part at least, because you have to be willing to pray, God, God, see if there is any wicked way in me. And instead of just saying like, I know there be like, okay, <laughs> which one are we dealing with though? <laughs> are you willing to pray, God, show me, Show me myself so that I can get more when I say, show me thyself. Can I be more receptive? These last verses are a prayer. The whole psalm is a prayer, really. Please pray them. Pray these verses. The last request in the psalm is lead me in the way everlasting. Yes, this is more than show me how to get to heaven. This is saying, God, let me live in a way that is according to the request, let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead me on the way everlasting. Let my life be for the things that you are for. It's not just put me on a path that has a specific destination called heaven. It's, it's a request of let me be walking in such a way that my life reflects the realities of heaven. If you live with the truth of God's searching eye at the forefront of your mind and you wake up realizing that your day has events that are planned for you by God according to Ephesians 2:10. And if in your prayer life you are requesting God to take away your blind spots, you will be living a life that looks like someone is leading you in the way everlasting. I pray that this would be true of each of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in your goodness, in your greatness, that you have shown us both these things, and that, and that your greatness is for us. God, you have revealed yourself again and again, day after day, to be all that you say you are in Scripture, good and glorious, great and powerful. We lift the name of Jesus, our Savior. We pray that his name would be exalted in our church, in our lives, in every day of our lives. Search us, Lord. Know our anxieties. Lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.